My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, back in action. That's right, it's me, the one and only Mark Palmer. And I'm here with one of my favorite podcast hosts. He is the other half of the Grimerica show. His name is Graham Dunlop. Please check out all of the great narrated audiobooks that him and Darren have put together on adultbrain.ca. Be sure to check out their new untethered Primerica Outlawed. It's a great new podcast where it's basically no holds bars. With everything going on lately, they figured, you know what? We're going to go a lot deeper and we're going to do it on a different show. And I love it. I think there's twice as much Grimerica to go around now. So enjoy this awesome conversation with Graham. We went all over the place. It's hard to put a pin on it. It's hard to put a title on this episode, but we talked about a bunch of cool stuff. And in other news, we re-released the Aeon Animus interview, episode 32. I use a... uh, new editing software now so hopefully you guys notice a difference in the quality if you have been listening that long and you have heard episode 32 thank you for those sticking with us this is episode 80 folks we're only 20 away from episode 100 we're gonna do something special for sure and we're only about 9,000 downloads away from hitting 100,000 downloads And we haven't even hit our year anniversary yet, but that's coming up too in October. So, wow, a lot's going to be happening this fall. We didn't get a chance to go to Montauk. Shout out to the Patreon audience that knew about that. We threw out a little sneak preview. Unfortunately, things changed. We weren't able to make it to Montauk, but we've got other trips in the works and we'll be on our way somewhere even better soon Uh, thank you for joining us folks enjoy this double feature 
podcast episode, Graham Dunlop and Aeon Animus, who synchronistically I first heard on the Grimerica show. He uh, and myself were both members of the Grimerica.ca chats. So go over to the chats at Grimerica.ca. Check out all the cool things that Graham and Darren have put together over the past almost decade now that they've been doing the Grimerica show. Really an honor. They say don't meet your heroes, but I did. Anyways, enjoy. So Darren and I had this huge fucking laughing fit on the show and we were talking and it was just like, like it kept going on and on and on. And, and that, that might, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe that was where it sort of like accelerated or peaked. It's like a compound synchronicity on the show where, where I was talking about Red Hawks, I think it was. Jonathan 12, I was talking about Jonathan 12 Hawks books, and then I had seen a red hawk that day. I'd rode right past it and like looked it in the eyes, and then I looked it up, and, and then I I got in the and played this book and it and came right to the spot in the book. Like it was in the middle of this huge audiobook and it played right at the spot. And I was like, oh, that's so great. We're putting it all together. And then I read these old books from the 1800s and they were already there. They were already there. They're already talking about the giants in the Book of Enoch and going being uh, the progenitors of the human race, and and it's like they, what, the, what, what we haven't even in a lot of ways I feel like we haven't even come anywhere. We've just gone around in circles, and now we're finally all kind of acknowledging that hey, there was an ancient global race of pyramid builders and giants and and magicians and. How's everything been lately, Graham? Good, good. Pretty good. Awesome. Yep. How about yourself? Same, same. Yeah, I like good. the, uh, <laughs> look at I, that. I know I'd have to show you the Pink Floyd banner. <laughs> now, you know. Right on. Yeah. It's, uh, that was one of my favorite albums, of course, growing up, you know. Well, I hope that's the first of many synchronicities that we can talk about today. Yeah, exactly. Cool, man. All right. So I got you up on my bigger screen now so i'm gonna try to get right here so we're kind of looking at each other i know sometimes that could be uncomfortable yeah that is i'm trying to do that more myself wow. i've got the thing up here but it's still hard to like you, you know it's it's almost like you need the camera to be like at the person's face you know yeah yeah it's like look at that's, the camera that's an idea you know there that's a technology thing that has to come about i mean <laughs> you should be able to focus it where you know Mm, like some kind of center virtual yeah virtual yeah. centering or something you know yeah that sounds like it's going to be a part of the eye tracking and the, exactly. all of the other little minute details they're going to start to hone in on yeah oh man yeah well, we're in for a, we're in for a rough ride coming up yeah i i, I think you know well, my thoughts and, and prayers go out to you guys up there because i know it's a lot different down here in the states than it is up there but yeah yeah it's it's i'm i'm not too far probably a 45 minute drive from new york city and it, it, it's just totally different it's like a smart city it's you see the, all the seeds being planted for this new smart city you know and uh, in your in your city or in new york well not particularly where i live but 
The closest city to me, yes, but New York City is what I was talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just heard, I mean, just lately, today, yesterday, you know, they're they're pushing you guys. I don't think you guys are out of the woods yet. I mean, this is, this is it's going to come down on you guys as well, I think. But yeah, we'll I was just speaking with uh, Matt Belair, past guest on your show, and a fellow Canadian, and he was he was basically talking about how it's on us in a way like the rest of the world kind of looks at us to kind of be that last man to stand up for individual liberty because of our constitution and what it does protect us from essentially tyranny. And we see with the states and provinces that are still within some kind of control of the queen or the empire or the crown. They have way less rights. I mean, understandably so, but here in America, I mean, my girlfriend and I, we just got kicked out of a grocery store two days ago for not wearing masks. So it's not totally free over here. It is getting draconian in some places, but it's very transparently political. Like the towns that are, have always been sort of liberal are very strict and the towns and, and you know, cities that are more Republican govern. They're not strict at all. We were at a coffee shop today in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fairfield always votes Republican, even though Connecticut's a pretty much democratic state straight down the board. And yeah, no mask mandates in any of the, the, the doors that at least the ones we walked by. So things are, things are looking up in that way, but I'm also Graham, I think you'll respect this. I'm sure you understand and appreciate this. I'm someone who tries to take a step back from the media and not be as plugged in as I used to be. Is that something that you obviously with your position covering all this stuff, you want to be informed or you're listening? Well, I mean, we're not, I, the thing is, I'm not really, we're not really covering it. We're, we are in some episodes, but it's not like we're like a news, like some of these awesome sort of independent journalists who are doing like sort of news deconstruction on a regular basis. It just comes up in certain episodes with us, depending on who we're chatting with. And Darren, I mean, we don't really even like to talk about it a lot, the news, but you just, you just have to pay attention to some of it now. I mean, I try not to, I try not to let that ruin sort of us uh, creating our own future, you know, because it'll, it'll like, honestly, dude, up here, it's crazy. The, the news, like our, our province is like the Texas of Canada, right? And we are now we are now under mask provincial mask mandates again, even though they promised us that uh, things were opening back up in our little area here. So they're just they're just blowing through all the promises just like everybody else. And now it's turning into they they supposedly no no passports here in Alberta, but you can already sense it just from memes and I only pick up like bits and pieces memes and I can't sit there and watch the news or listen to the radio, but I have friends that, that do and people that sort of fill us in on, on the, the, the vibe of it. And it's getting pretty scary, dude. We are in the minority. Like the, what's happening now is we're at about, if you don't mind me just giving you a quick summary, because it's kind of got to do with like what's happening right now. Like it's very, it's very interesting because we talked about this a year ago, like a year and a half ago, we said, Matt, vaccine passports are like mandatory vaccines are coming and everybody thought we were fucking crazy people thought we were off the hook we're like i'm like really you can't see that this is coming they're already mentioning it this is like last summer spring and now it's accelerating at a pace that is incredible i have loved ones that cannot 
carry on with the regular life, just doing basic entertainment stuff because now they're already, they're already pushing vaccine passports in these areas. So in Alberta, it's supposed to be sort of a little bit more free and open, but you can already tell it's, it's shifting. And the problem, what's happening is this whole younger, and I, and I don't want to make it a, an age thing at all, but there's, there's 80, about 70 to 80% of the people have had a vaccine and in, in are vaccinated in Canada now. And it varies from area to area, but even our area in Alberta, it's a very high percentage. And the problem is most of them agree with it. Most of them want the passport. They want this. They want this to, they think you should be showing your papers when you go buy groceries, when you do this and that. I've heard my friends saying that there's three young women behind them are saying, well, yeah, it should be like that. Like they're, so we're up, we're not against like this authoritarian tyranny from the government. We're up against all the, a lot of the public that want this to happen. And it's like, fine, let for me and a lot of us, I'm sure it's at the point where it's like, okay, that's, that's okay. If you want that, that's fine. But then leave us alone. Like don't, but they're not gonna, like, they're not letting us, they're not going to let us get out of this. And I, and I think it's going to come down there too. And it's going to start, it might start up here. It might, I mean, it's already starting in Australia like this. It's like, what, so what, what is that? The difficulty is like, we're trying to, I'm trying to manifest like kind of like the Michael Wan thing, right? Like forget about like, get out of the matrix or whatever, or manifest our way out of the matrix. What does that look like a parallel economy? Or is that still in the matrix or is it completely underground? I mean, I'm trying to be conscious of not paying attention to the negative media and the law and the blatant lies and the, and the scientism and all that stuff and manifest our own sort of reality and upcoming reality, but it's getting sort of more and more difficult in a way. Like, cause I, you feel kind of like helpless, right? That you could see this coming, this train just coming forward. Uh, and, and you, and you're like, well, you know, the protesting's not really doing anything. I mean, especially in Canada, because we've been so lax at that, but even though it's starting to ramp up, you don't feel like that's going to do anything. The courts aren't really helping. I mean, people are sort of waiting for the courts. Like, but as a, as a person that doesn't agree with that, what do you do? Like, what can you do? Like the, the, you know, the real, the regular things that you think might have some sort of effect aren't really there anymore. They're not, they, they they just don't care this because so, the, the people are against you now, right now. Now we have, so where, where is it going to end? Right. What are they going to, I don't think they're going to Teresa Tam, the head of our health thing in Canada already mentioned something about a hundred percent, right? They started at 60% vaccinated and now they want 70. They wanted 70 before we opened up. We got to 70. Now they're saying 80. Now they're saying 85. Like when it's obviously not going to stop. Because they should be happy with what they've got. They've got plenty. Of, they've got what they wanted. They should be happy. But I don't know. Do they not want a control group? Is that what it is? Do they just not want a control group anymore? Because they don't have one. Yeah. Officially. Yeah. And old but, uh, Sleepy Joe, just I just saw today, he, he said that his patience is wearing thin. Yes. So I, it's, hap- <laughs> like, it's like this is like 70 years ago. It's happening all over again. And people can't even see it. They just do not understand it. Well, it's that group think that's been social engineered every which way it seems to fit each generation. Uh, like it's custom built, like they're planning these things ahead of time. This generation, I'm t- turning 27 next month. So I'm on the younger side and I see kids that are contemporary to me and maybe a little younger than me, but not too much younger than me. Cause they seem to be kind of like radical to this stuff, but around my age, it's social justice warrior all the way. Like I've been, you know, 
completely a black sheep since I've taken that turn away from a mainstream worldview. I've always had different ideas and interests, but in the 90s and the early 2000s, I was fine. I was okay. Nobody really bothered me. But then, you know, after Obama, Bernie, Trump, these years, things started getting really politically charged. And that set the stage for where we're at now, where 10 years ago, you would have had all these people saying, my body, my choice. Now they're saying, no, we're going to choose what you put in your body, you know, and for the great, for the greater good. I mean, they want yeah. that. They, they think it's for the greater good and bless them for, bless them for wanting it to be for the greater good. But it's just it's when you've already, a lot of us have already been deconstructing the media lives for a decade, let's say, or, or, you know, following some of these topics that you just kind of, you kind of know that there's this veil of illusion over the narrative constantly about all kinds of stuff. And then when, when, so when you see this happening, you're, you're kind of ready for it in a way, once we kind of got through the initial phase of, oh, is it, what's this, what's it feeling this thing out? You know, is it real? Is it scary? What is it? Once you start getting the data and all that, and you start following the the science, it's not being discussed in the media. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well here, here it is. This is actually happening. The stuff we talked about, because we talked about, Bill Gates' decade of vaccines in 2010, like with Dell Big Tree, you know, years ago, let's say, or we've already been, been on the big pharma thing for a few years. So, and, and the media in general. So to see it happen, it's really, it's really surreal. Like it's almost to the point where we have to, or I have to really try and play, treat this as like what it, what it is in, in a positive sense. It's the most interesting propaganda. It's the most interesting thing ever in his the biggest like, propaganda the biggest, campaign we've seen yeah it's, but but by far like it's just yeah. blowing everything away i mean it's so it, big that you had to make a branch off shoot of your podcast because i'm sure people are like what happened to great america this is getting really serious i used to come here and talk about easter island heads and and now they're talking about jab and health and i completely understand the decision you guys have, have created now two kind of ships here outlawed focusing more on this topic the more serious stuff the more yeah. uh, detail oriented and then grimerica just as detail oriented but more on the uh, on the intriguing mysterious lighter side of things would you would you say that was the point of of making yep. the the kind of diversion there yep you bet right on and i wanted to i wanted to leave my day job at some point so and we wanted to do more content so it was just like how how are we going to do more content and we were arguing amongst ourselves we want to talk about this again i'm saying well hey this is like the most important thing that's happening to us it's we're living through this slow car crash conspiracy we're living right through it we need to talk about it but so we i think we've i think we've done i mean in some ways we sort of self-censored ourselves which is i mean that's i guess that's okay at some levels as long as it's not too bad, but we have, we have to continue to talk about it and we have to also isolate what we built for the last eight years on all these other crazy topics that aren't quite as black pilled global. But, but as you mentioned though, this, this topic has come up throughout many conversations. I mean, congratulations on 500 episodes. It's awesome. But you know, I've been listening for a long time. I've listened to, I would say from episode one to 500, a bunch of them, like a, a large percentage. I'm not going to lie to you and say, listen to every episode, but after all of these episodes, have any ideas synchronistically resurfaced again and again 
to the point where you're like, this is, this is calling to me, like this particular topic or I, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because before I came here tonight, I was thinking about, you know, of course running through my head. I'm like, cause I'm not used to being interviewed and, and it's hard for me to do. I can't, I could never do a show by myself, you know? And, but I'm interested in a whole bunch of different things. And I was thinking before I come on here, like, what am I going to talk about? Like, I don't have, a, I don't have like original research in anything, right? Except for my own fucking experience and consciousness and all that kind of stuff. Addiction, maybe like there's some stuff that, that of course I can speak to from that kind of level, but, and I can't, I can't ever do it because we're, you know, I've got to, I like to prepare for all the different shows. I like to look at all these different topics and I'm interested in a lot of different topics, but I, but there's a part of me that thinks, wouldn't it be nice to do some original research and go on a show and talk about some, like really uncovering some of those things, you know, instead of just asking other people about them. But the war on consciousness came up because I heard, I heard that, where did I hear it now? I think I heard from somewhere from decades ago or something. Somebody was talking about it from decades ago. It was a quote from a book or something. And I was like, oh my God, this is like what the theme of Grimerica was. And even just talking about it at the beginning when UFOs and psychedelics and, and Mars or whatever, whatever weird things we, we started talking about, it was a war. It was always a just, you could always summarize it in a, it's, it's a war on consciousness. It's a war on our consciousness. And it's so weird to see people now in all these different fields, whether it's cryptozoology or ufology or spirituality or even alternative healing, they're split down. Like we are being split like every which way now. I mean, even these people that are in alternative health are, are sort of going along with this whole thing. It's so Don't weird. Be afraid the, to the, say UFO, it. the UFO <laughs> community. The UFO community, they yoga and classes in masks. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, like you're like, what is going on? Yeah. Big yeah. Pharma used to be like big pharma used to be half the people's, you know, nemesis. And now they're just falling on lockstep. It's a, it's the craziest thing we've ever seen. So, Hey, I'm kind of going away from your question, but I'm back to like trying to appreciate this moment for what it is and, and almost ride the wave and, and enjoy it or try to enjoy it without getting bogged down in the dark aspect of it. Right. Right. And yeah, I've noticed that in my own life, the, the war for consciousness, it's always felt like whether it was school or my family or whatever job I had taken under, there was a war for your mental space in a way. Now it is some violent or extreme, but people are, are constantly trying to take land in your mental scape. And I think what a show like yours does is it helps to, for a black sheep like me, bring in a fuller picture because when you're just reading books, it's your own voice a lot of the times. And I, what's so awesome about your show is a lot of these authors that I've been reading before I ever knew what a podcast was, you've interviewed and then to hear their voice and then read their book again. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. This is an actual person who's thinking about this stuff. Like me, it's not just a book. I mean, narrating the secret teachings written by Manly P. Hall. I mean, there's definitely some residual effect from reading that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Yeah, and I mean, uh, and now I've had the pleasure of, of narrating a bunch of different esoteric books and and it is, it you know, what's interesting is that I didn't realize how they were battling materialism in the 1800s as well, right? Like there, it was, I mean, I can't believe in reading this book like, for example, the ISIS Unveiled is Blavatsky's book. Oh, I just finished narrating book one of that. And like Secret Teachings is a little bit different in that in this respect. But 
but that they were battling materialism. It was like religion and, and science, scientism was already a thing 150 years ago. They were battling it. I mean, this is, this was like the big sort of middle spiritual occult thing that we, you know, that we kind of, I think that we would sort of resonate with as opposed to materialism and, and religion. So that's one, that's one theme. And then I guess also the, the whole secret societies and initiations and then the, just the, that it was more prevalent than I ever would have thought, you know, it, right. it's just, it's, it, it, it really makes it graspable that, that there was, that there's always been these, these parts of society that are kind of hidden and that, that only the adepts really learn what's going on, the truth, right. Until now, until now, until this age where that's why things are going to, I think ex accelerate as well, because we all have access to the information, not and I'm not saying the exact information and the direct information, but way more than we ever did. Boom. I mean, yeah. how many, how many people have come out and said, Hey, this is what we learn in Freemasonry, or this is what we learn in the Rosy Cross or, you know, what, whatever it is, the, the, the Joe Rook, gold, the, the gold, you know, Joe Rook, Rook like, the ex member of the Golden Dawn. And he, now he has his own radio station, <laughs> you <exactly>. know? <laughs> so it's, I think it is out there now and, and you can't really put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, I'm sure they're going to use it against us and I'm sure they have been, but right. It's, I think that's, that's something I think that, you know, little sort of thematic things that I've, I've learned from reading some of those books. Yeah, no. And, and that's completely in resonance with my experience. I remember first looking through this secret history of the world by Mark Booth and that I bought the copy with his pen name, Jonathan Black. So I'm like, who's this guy, Jonathan Black. And, and a little background growing up in Connecticut, not too far from Yale university. When I started reading about these secret societies, I'm like, oh, boom, there they are. Like, this is not, this is a no brainer. This starts and I started to put the pieces together, but what really happened, Graham, is like, I stepped into a different reality because as soon as I opened those books, I started wrapping my mind into those world, the people I was meeting, it started to have like a magnetic effect for this information. Like certain people would come to me and it, it would just come out of nowhere. These topics, right? Was that your experience even before Grimerica that you'd been to the pyramids, you've seen certain things in the skies or you had experiences before you started the show. Was this something that, that was like calling to you? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I was always listening to, I was listening to podcasts since I think 2006 or seven, maybe 2008. And I, and already back then, even at the beginning when there's probably only like a few thousand or whatever, there was still whatever you wanted to learn about, you could learn about for free, right? You could find them on iTunes for free podcasts about anything back then. Even I was always listening to those. And I, like you said, I had, I had just gotten like sober and I had that experience in 2008 and that, that just sort of propelled me back into this alternate reality because I was kind of caught in the, in the, uh, the corporate climbing up the ladder and, and just partying too hard and drinking too hard and all that. So I think that had more to do with it than any sort of esoteric experiences, really, to be honest with you, except that that, that connects with getting sober as well. I mean, I had a synchronicity in, in, in treatment. I was just reading ab about, I was going back through some of my notes in 2008 and I was talking about synchronicities back then. I'm like, what the hell? I was talking about synchronicities back then, but I did this. I had, I went to Qigong, the, my first Qigong class in, in the treatment center. 
And it was mind blowing to me. I was like, I totally loved it. It was all energized and everything. And I, and I was reading Eckhart Tolle's new, new earth. And I was narrating, I was reading parts of it to the group. Like I was such a fucking dork. I, I, I even wanted to be, I wanted to watch like Oprah and, and Eckhart, like in treatment. I was such a, a nerd, but I opened up the book and looked down that night when I, and, and the first word I looked at was Qigong after my first class of Qigong. And, and it was like, oh my God, like, how can that even be possible? You know? Yeah. So that was pretty, you know, and that brought into like my old, I, I, I started thinking back to my old meditate, like I took transcendental meditation classes in the mid nineties and I had the UFO sighting and I was looking for UFOs in the mid nineties and sort of all that, all that came flooding back, getting, getting sober. And then, so I think that kind of, and then people saying, well, why don't you do a podcast? I was like, no, 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 I could never do that. But after after meeting Darren and, and sort of getting more involved in all these other ancient mysteries, like sort of going down all these different rabbit holes. Um, I kind of thought, well, maybe I could, I could do that. Cause I, I always wanted to listen to people and I was, I was always annoyed at people getting interrupted, you know, people being interrupted. I'm like, well, you, you guys won't even listen. You won't even let the guy talk. Like they don't even get their points across. So I wanted to just have a, a platform where we could have discussions and actually just listen to people too, you know? Yeah. And you do just that. I mean, there is a huge, huge resource. Like you said, you could practically learn about anything listening to Grimerica show. You guys do cover a whole range of topics. I mean, on the point of synchronicities though, when did you begin to notice these synchronicities emerging between you and your audience? Because for me as a listener, that was a big like wake up moment. Cause I had kind of had an idea of what synchronicities were, but when I started listening to your show and you guys had these, like, you know, rate the synchros and you'd have, you would actually read the listeners experiences and how things lined up. And th- it started happening for me where I'd pick a show and then bada bing, like next thing I know, I'm like delivering a package and the, the name of the guy's last name is the same as whatever was being talked about it. And that's just one little example. There's so many, it's hard to recall, but when did, when did that start to become a, a I think it was pretty, theme? I think it was pretty early. It was pretty early on because I remember listening to the Graylian report and I think synchronicities were coming up and some other things we were talking about. And, and now that I think about it, yeah, of course, cause I was talking about them in the two, or mid two thousands and 2008 as well. And which really shouldn't surprise me, but it, 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 it does seem weird looking back now that it was so long ago, but, but I think what, one of the main things that happened was we had a pretty big synchronicity, like a compound synchronicity on the show where, where I was talking about red hawks i think it was jonathan 12 i was talking about jonathan 12 hawks books and then i had seen a red hawk that day i'd rode right past it and like looked it in the eyes and then i looked it up and and then i i got in there and played this book and it and came right to the spot in the book like it was in the middle of this huge audiobook and it played right at the spot where it talked about I can't, I can't even remember what, oh, Jonathan 12 Hawk came up right, right on this other audiobook. I think it was from David Wilcock at the time. And then, so Darren and I had this huge fucking laughing fit on the show and we were talking and it was just like, like it kept going on and on and on. And, and that, that might, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe that was where it sort of like accelerated or peaked or something. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I don't want to like try to jump on the train too late here, but red-tailed hawks are our big 
thing for me. I mean, obviously pretty common bird, but still while listening to the show, driving around, delivering packages, your show, the higher side chats, bunch of others, Tim Fall Hat, obviously now working for Sam. I mean, if that's not a huge synchronicity, but yeah, red-tailed hawks were a theme. But when you, you, you said that just there, it reminded me of something that happened with my girlfriend and I just a month or two ago. So a little backstory, episode 25, I had Michael Wan on, right? You've had Michael Wan, uh, really interesting guy, right? So I had him on the show and he has a wand that he's showing me. And I'm like, oh, dude, I made a wand too. So I show him my wand. Next thing you know, we're kind of chummy. And then he's like, yeah, come on down. Like, so I, I'm in his state and I visit him, right? So we hang out, get to know him. Well, Graham, a year before that, okay, I was listening to Michael's interviews. I didn't work for Sam Tripoli. I didn't have my own podcast. And I had an opportunity to drive a friend to the airport down in Washington, D.C. It's like eight hours south from where I live. So I'd never been down there before. So I go down, check out Washington, D.C., full of all the symbolism you'd expect. And nobody was there because of COVID. So it was beautiful. But I stop at the Susquehanna River. Okay. I say my peace with the river. Next thing I know, less than six months later, I meet Michael Wan, the Susquehanna alchemist. So there's certainly magic that can be sort of on your precipice. And I think what happens, a lot of people ignore it. It's, it's there for everybody. I'm not special. You're not special. We all have these synchronicities. And, and when you are aware of them, you start to put more careful attention on them, they start to react and respond to your consciousness. Just like when you go out with these CSETI, you know, groups and, and you, these lights are responding seemingly to your consciousness. That, would that be, you know, true to your experience as well? Yeah. I mean, that was a beginning part of, of what we used to talk about more in the beginning for some reason and, and uh, not so much lately, but that you had to be aware, like you had to be in, in the moment, right? Like it was, it was kind of a real relation to, to the practicing of being in the moment. Like if you're not in the moment, you can, how are you going to notice any, any synchronicity really? Right. right. I mean, like if, speaking if, if you're just in your head, like thinking about tomorrow or yesterday, or just in a distracted state, like I'm not even going to, going to notice anything. So that was the number one thing, right? Well, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I do need to be present because I forgot why I brought that up. Well, let's go back to where I was. So I meet Michael Wan, I become his friend. We're talking on the phone one day. He calls me out of nowhere, right? And I'm driving. I look ahead of me in the road and it looked like there was a fox in the road. I'm just talking on the phone. Probably shouldn't have been talking on the phone, but Mike was on the phone. And I look, I'm like, is that a fox? So I pull up, I get a little closer and Graham, it's a red tailed hawk, like with its talons in a possum, like deep in the possum. And it's like holding its ground. I pull my car up. I turn my hazards on cause there's other traffic. I don't want them to swerve around me or anything. And I look this hawk right in the eye and it flew off like literally two feet away from me. And these are the kind of experiences I've had over and over with animals. So when you mentioned the red-tailed hawk being a big synchronicity, I don't remember that moment. Like I said, I've listened to every episode of the Grand America show, but there's another example. Is there any other animal omens that have been prevalent? I know you just had that interview 
And you guys talked about spirit animals in a way, right? Your, your newest episode of the Great Mary. Oh, show. geez. Yeah, that was way beyond. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> but no, you know what? The, the weird thing about the red tail hawk thing is that I, I remember riding, I was riding north of Calgary on this bike path up in this big park. And I saw this raptor way ahead of me on the, on the fence post. And I was like, I wonder, was that, what is that? Is that a bird? Is that an owl? Is that a rat? What is that? And I, and I, as I rode past it, like it was, I was literally like two feet away from it. And then we just looked at each other and I looked at it in the eyes as I rode by it. I'm like, how did it just stayed there for me the whole time? It was very strange, but no, um, not a lot of other animal ones. I mean, I had a couple, I had a couple, uh, meditation, like group med, I went, used to go to group meditations all the time. And I'd see like, we did a, like an animal animal one and it kept what kept coming up for me was a boar mm. a boar was sort of my spirit animal or whatever but you don't seem too thrilled about that i wasn't at the time i tried to go like that can't be it it's got to be something more more cool about that and it kept coming back i'm like okay i guess that's it when i looked it up it was pretty cool actually i was like okay yeah. I, can, I can handle that is that makes sense it always, it always is way, way cooler than the first impression on the, uh, the point of meditating and you've spoken to so many people and even people who aren't, you know, uh, experts in self-improvement or metaphysics, this kind of thing seem to offer these little kernels of wisdom or little practices, like one that always stuck with me. And I, I think I even reached out to you about this guy turning himself invisible and this kind of metaphysical hunting practices. Forgive me for forgetting. His yeah, name. no, no, I, I know who it is. Carl Joseph DeMarco. That's it. I knew there's a mark in there somewhere. Carl Joseph DeMarco. But besides him, are there any other methodologies that you picked up from different guests that have stuck with you? Yeah, well, his cousin, Eric P. Antony. So one of the first books, so this is a bit synchronous too. Like this is, this is what's weird. This is also very weird. So it's kind of going to get, go off track a little bit, but his, he came on the show and he, he, he read, wrote a book called song of the immortal beloved. And it's pretty, it's kind of pretty technical. A lot of it's over my head, but it's, it's kind of combining a lot of ancient wisdom with, with current esoteric wisdom. And it, and it kind of talks about our soul, the planetary soul, the cosmic soul, our personal souls, all the connection between all that, the, the logos and, and it even gets into the, you know, the sort of the demiurge and the, the Lucifer and all kinds of stuff like that. But it also is a really functional way to do this alchemical meditation. And, and it really peels away layers of your authentic self and reading the book, I had felt like I had been through many of these this these experiences already and it's about climbing the three mountains right mount magia mount mount kabbalah and i can't remember the other one off the top of my head it'll come it'll come to me but and it, and and it's sort of taken a bunch of wisdom from all these ancient traditions but he's put it together in this book and he wanted to do it on audio and he asked if we could do it and my first reaction was there's no way like no way could i do that and then i started thinking why am i so why am i rejecting this right i mean i had a job and i was working i was like i can't do it like just too much and i thought you know what i could do it because i was already i think i had already narrated a friend's book on the ufos how to see a ufo her book i did that and then i was going to do the recovery dharma book so i did that first as a as a, i just thought i'll put that on audio for them that'll be kind of be practice in a way and i'll see if that if it goes good i'll do this big book it is a huge book it's like seven eight hundred pages so I kind of faced my fear on that and did that. But then when I started looking back on it, 
my journey through alchemy really was started in, in sobriety as well. And, and, and I, I narrated to myself in a digital recorder, the 12 steps and 12 traditions of the big book and, and, and the big book itself. And I'm like, why, why did I even do that back then? It was like 13 and a half years ago, but I was lying on the couch after meditate. I used to do all these long meditations and stuff. And I would, and I, and for some reason I, I just, I narrated all this. So I would have it on audio. Like that was back when I guess it was the first time can you could conveniently make your own audio and put it on your phone, I guess. Right. Or an iPod. It was in an iPod. So interesting how that ended up being something that I could do for a living. Yeah. Later on. But I mean, I had to, I had to sort of break through a couple layers of fear before I could do that. And then after doing that book, it was so challenging, his book. I mean, holy shit. After doing that, I could tackle these other big, older esoteric books, which are still all also very challenging. But yeah, yeah. I mean, context, pronunciation, some of these words, like, how do you even oh, figure out how they're no, you can't. No, you can't. You can't. You can't. I mean, you have to give up. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't be a perfectionist. I mean, or you could if you want to spend a week trying to trying to do like but you, it's a, they don't even you can't even find the definitions of half of them right or the or the here's one for you there you go wow we we found this today at a bookstore wow it's, yeah I, I was so perplexed by the cover because it's got this like minotaur guy on it yeah yeah with this the horns and he's holding a skull and i open it up and it's in memory of a Jesuit priest. And they're talking Lee, dude. all kinds of, you is, know. It, is that a Daderon? How do you pronounce that? Daderon? <laughs> Daedalicon, I would say. Daedalicon. When I looked that word up, the only thing they came up were like the Greek word for dandelions. And yeah, I, I, I know. That's not, that's not. No, yeah, I would go through all these different things. I'm like, I just gotta, I just gotta make the best of it. Try it out. Yeah. Well. On that point, I mean, there are so many different angles you can go down. And, and as you mentioned, when Darren kind of came into the fray, that brought some of the more ancient history stuff. Darren loved the show Mysterious Universe. I remember, I think he mentioned that first time you, you both were on this show. Thank you for joining us all the way back then. And, and yeah, what, how is your, your idea? of our past. Cause these questions like, where do we come from? Who are we? What are we doing here? It's so prolific in this sphere, but how has that changed your idea of, of our human history since? Oh, that's a, that's probably the one of, that's probably the, like the, uh, the next biggest theme that's changed, right? The UFO theme and all that stuff has always sort of been like the, all of the above answers always just been up there in my consciousness and I haven't really, really hasn't really developed that much really. I mean, that's, it's changed a little bit, but not compared to where we came from in the ancient history part. And that's the other part that resonated with me with these older books, like reading the secret doctrine and ISIS unveiled. I'm thinking that I thought all this stuff from the ancient mysteries that these, all these contemporary researchers were talking about, like the global civilization of the ancient past and the pyramid builders all over the, and the giants all over and the, the language and the esoteric stuff all over. Like, I thought that was kind of more in my head. I was like, Oh, that's so great. We're putting it all together. And then I read these old books from the 1800s and they were already there. They were already there. They were already talking about the giants in the book of Enoch and going, being, uh, the progenitors of the human race and, and, it almost you know, makes you wonder if it's like, they, what the fuck? What, we haven't even, in a lot of ways, I feel like we haven't even come anywhere. We've just gone around in circles. 
And then we're finally all kind of acknowledging that, hey, there was an ancient global race of pyramid builders and giants and, and magicians and, you know, esotericists and all that, all this stuff. And, and we're, we're finally coming back to that. Yeah. No, it makes you wonder, like, when did this like rewriting of history really start? Because it seems like the 19th century was pretty bright. We have the Theosophical Society holding on to all these ideas. And at the same time, you have groups like the Smithsonian Institute actively covering history up and then smashing and bear. I mean, I remember, I'm not sure if it was your show or, or another show, but a guest mentioned like these relic smashing parties that they would have where it, it became out of fashion to have all of these relics that they found when they started creating townships. Yeah, they dig up mounds and pass the token artifacts around. And then it became uh, a rumor that they were all counterfeit and fake. So everybody got together, threw them in a pile and just smashed them. You know, and I don't know if that's hyperbole or if that would, that's actual events, but it does kind of just like crush you a little bit when you find out that that happened, especially considering like how rich this research is for someone like yourself has spoken to so many different active researchers. It just feels like the mystery gets bigger and bigger. The more you look into it rather oh, yeah. than the opposite. Oh, hundred percent. I got way more questions now than I ever did. I know, <laughs> I know, I feel like I know less. I mean, it's, it's the farther we go on, but I mean, it does give me the feeling that they were, they were get they were pushing towards this, this spirituality that everybody like basically extended consciousness or whatever, right? The astral realm. I mean, that's even an old, old term now, but, but I feel like the materialism that they were warning us about happened. Like they, they, in the early 1900s, they got rid of ether. And then basically we, we went down this tyranny of matter, like the materialism took over. And then now we're seeing, we're right at the pinnacle of that right now. It started to fall apart in the last, I'd say five, 10 years, 15 years with all the sort of spiritual science research, you know, the, the Rupert Sheldrakes and the, the Bruce Lipton's and the Greg Braden's and all those guys, like, you know, a lot, a lot of that, the seem Harriman, like all that real, the people that are really not dogmatic about any ideology, they're just looking at true spirituality from a scientific method and, 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 uh, process. And that, I mean, maybe that's why this is coming to an end right now. Why, why materialism is kind of coming to this pinnacle because that's what's driven this whole, this was driven what we're going through right now is this materialistic paradigm that we live in where there's no, we're just, we're just to be manipulated and injected with stuff. And we're not even, a, we don't even have a soul and, a, and, you know, extended consciousness. I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's just a misrepresentation of who we are as, as humans too, I think. Yeah. And I think it slipped away back then in the late eighties, 1800s. I really do think something happened in the 1800s that that um really changed our view of history from as from humanity yeah yeah it's one thing that's kind of been more popularized over the past year or two years is tartaria i think you know a lot of people are re-evaluating our historical narrative even down to like the details like architecture and were these civil war cannons actually firing cannonballs i mean there's a whole series of 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 questions there but without going down those tangents when you mention this materialist paradigm coming to an end it brings to mind a book that I really fell in love with over the past few months. It's called Time and the Technosphere 
by Jose Arguelles. And he talks about how 9-11, which we're coming up upon the 20th anniversary of now, was like this boiling point where we had created a split between ourselves, our mental sphere, and the biological sphere that nourished us that we were connected to. And we started to create an artificial matrix to do those same things that Mother Earth once did for us, but in a lackluster materialistic way. We create these like material rivers that are roads that push all of these finely packaged products to everybody's homes and standardize everything, monocrops here, monocrops there. And it over, over, overflowed to this, you know, energetic bursting point. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And if you've heard anything like that from any guests that you've had on this. Not really just from maybe the, does he mean, did he mean in a direct way or was it just a timing thing? He, he talks about the law and the art of time is it's really all about like the, the sort of energetic side of things. I, I think he means, he means that it had to happen in some way, whether it was that event or any event, the energy was boiling over and it all erupted. And now since 2001, we have this like opportunity to get back into the natural harmony of things. You have to read his book to get yeah, that. I mean, I hope there's an opportunity there. It seems like that's slipping away pretty quick. I mean, I, I do think that maybe the global consciousness project had something to do with that where, where for the first time nine, I think for the first time, a global event like that probably carried waves across the whole globe. Like why, how, when, when would you, no matter how big the event was before mass communication like this, you, you, I mean. Yeah, you were getting some of it on the news, news is before and all, but I think we were really truly globally, like, I wonder how long before 9-11 we were truly globally connected with the internet and all, because that was still pretty young. That was 20 years ago, right? I mean, in the mid nineties, it wasn't, that was really when the internet was really starting to take off, I would say, right? It was early mid nineties. And then that was shortly after, shortly after that happened, which spread these waves all across the globe via electronic internets, but also consciousness. I mean, they, the global consciousness network measured, I think it was them, but I'm sure you've heard the story where they measured the, they have these measuring stations everywhere, the random number generators, and they measured mm. these huge anomalies during that yeah. actually before it happened even. So we had this pre precog, this mass connected precognition of the event. Yeah. In light of Lynn McTaggart's work and many others, I mean, we, there's clear results for this kind of focused intention. I mean, I'm sure you've had guests on the show have talked about this, this sort of like, uh, mass trauma ritual that certain groups conduce or, or play out against us. Have you thought to maybe if there is a overarching group, if it is one group, like out of all the folks you've talked to and, and all the years that you've spent looking at this, does it seem like it is the Illuminati or any other particular group that people like to point the finger at? Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that they're using, it's so funny because I just, I just heard this yesterday or today and there people were saying, well, what group is this? Like, I think it was Tim Pool or something. Mm. There's this all they think there's these people with mustaches in the back room with cigars, like making the world, you know, 
Well, there, there are secret societies. I mean, there are levels to those and there are these vehicles for transformation. Now the, all the, all the, all the overt societies like the WEF and Davos and the UN and the, the who, and those are the vehicles for change. Now those are who they're using for that. I mean, yeah, I think there's people in the background that are controlling it. And I mean, the, the, the big question is like, we had a couple of guests on like that. I mean, John Paul Rice recently and Ben Grundy, for example, from mysterious universe, who I think they would both agree that there's a darker paranormal force or a darker arconic. I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you call it? The, the old one, the arconic, the, the, whatever sort of want to use to describe it, but something seems to be, something seems to be influencing what's happening and it's not, it's not good. Right. But then, mm. so it's, so, I mean, I, maybe, maybe that's at that higher level of the secret society. There is some dark influence there, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I'm not putting, I really try not to, to go down. Like I don't attach myself to speculations about that. I like to mm -hmm. speculate about it, but I really like day to day with the show and with all this stuff that like with all my loved ones and what's going on right now, I really like to try and stick with like the data that's available to us from the sources that the media is lying about, you know, like I really try and stick to like the science from a doctor scientific perspective on, and, and looking at, you know, like for example, Alberta's official data or the CDCs, or I try and stick with like, I really try and stick with that stuff that I can show people that says like, Hey, this, they're lying about this. Right. You know, overly right. lying about it. I mean, kind of going off subject, but no, no, no. I, I, I like to, I like, point. I like to speculate on all that stuff, but I don't really like to hang my hat on almost any, any kind of ideology or even, even thought about that stuff. Even UFOs. No. I mean, fuck, who knows what they're. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a respectable position to have. As you look into this stuff, the mystery only gets bigger. It's hard to point the finger when you learn about one group and then you learn just as many equal bad things about another group. And then you have another guy who comes out and says, well, that group's fake. And this is the actual group that's doing it. At the end of the day, it's like, no, we're dealing with a paradigm here. You mentioned something about you know, relating these messages to your loved ones. The show my family thinks I'm crazy is not titled that way for accidental reasons, you know? So for the listeners of the show who are in that position where they're like, oh, how do I get my family to see things a little bit more? Because we don't want to control how people think, but as open-minded thinkers, it's amazing how difficult it can be sometimes to have an open-minded discussion with people, especially when it comes to some of the more pressing issues of the day. Do you have any advice that maybe you've garnered over all your, you know, interviews, like how to kind of coach this stuff for people who aren't podcast listeners or haven't read a book about conspiracies before? Well, I think, I think one of the ways to do it is to ask questions of them and not in a way of like, do you know, or why is this? Why is that? Like, those are very rhetoric questions that seem more questioning than questions. Right. But the other day when I was kind of arguing with somebody and I was uh, discussing with somebody on Instagram and I was like, oh, and, it, and it, I can't, I'm not, I'm not on social media that much really, but when I do it, I can really feel in my body like this especially when somebody's like pushing back with all these mainstream talking points, like the 99% unvaccinated. I'm like, Oh my God, you're, you're there. You're there. Like you, you really think that is true. Like, do I have to, 
deconstruct that for you? Why they're calling everybody from January to August that before the shot was even out or somebody that's had one shot or two shots less than two weeks, like that's all unvaccinated. And you think they mean who hasn't had a single jab? Like, you know, it's just, but then I, so I wrote out, I was, I was like, and I wrote out, I wrote out a bunch of questions and and it's not like, do you know this or do you know that? But just like, I have like 30 or 40 questions here about it, you know? For example, how do they fill out death certificates? You know, what is the criteria? How do they actually categorize hospitalizations? I mean, that's a good question, right? No, no. You think the journalists ever ask that? Like, these are, these are questions that are to uh, you and I, we might know how they do it in our region, but to somebody that's just watching the TV, they'll, they'll have no idea the answers to these questions. Like, are they counting breakthrough cases? You know, what is a breakthrough infection? Can the COVID can the COVID uh, transmit even after fully vaccinated, you know, or like those, like these are just basic, but is there a percentage of us that already have T cell immunity? Like, but not in a way of like, did you know this? Did you know that? But just a question of, and not why, like there's no why questions in here. It's just a bunch of straight up questions. Like, are there any long-term side effects of the vaccine or where, where does the 90, where the 95% efficacy from the vaccine comes from? Like, do they know how that they calculated that? Like, if somebody was to look at research all these questions on their own, they would come to a completely different paradigm and perception of that. And none of it would be none of it would be accusatory of them or questioning them. It would just be them sort of finding out these things on their own. Right. So I mean, maybe that's maybe that turns into the answer to your question. Maybe instead of saying, do you know this or do you know that? Just ask like simple questions like. What's the average? What's the average? What's that? Well, what is the average? What is the average age of death from COVID? Yeah. Oh, Alberta website says it's eighty. What's the average death normally? It's eighty-one or eighty-two or or sorry. I mean, it it's actually eighty-one, and the average death of COVID is now eighty. It used to be eighty-one. It used to be the same. Yeah. So I don't know, but do do you think anybody is even or what's the average comorbidities of somebody dying from COVID? Like, you know, what's the chances of a young person dying from COVID? Like, I don't know. It's just maybe, maybe that's the way to go. That's why I like to stick with some of these, these, these average facts. Like, for example, the hospitalization, they've admitted it officially that they count somebody that's tested positive by PCR 28 days prior to being hospitalized for anything. So you could be in there for your broken leg. So I don't know that when they say that there's, 50% increase in hospitalizations for COVID, that, that doesn't mean anything unless you have the numbers, unless you know what, what they're in for. Like, right. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's something. Just ask them questions. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I think that's great advice, especially from that neutral position, but going back like, to here, one uh, more, go ahead. Have the definitions of, have the definitions of vaccine herd immunity and pandemic been changed recently? I mean. I don't know. What if somebody just looked into that recently yeah. and they had no clue that those have all changed? Does that change your perception? And they won't because there's a level of cognitive dissonance. But as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this conversation, we are manifesting our reality in a very real way. Yeah. And whether you realize it or not. And that's why they put so much resources and attention to manipulating and socially engineering us. So would you agree with that? Yeah. And it's hard. And it's, we, I think we have to also be strong and not have 
because it's very disappointing to see it happen, right? It's very disappointing to see to see them get away with outright deception and lies, outright, completely lying to to the public, and have to see eighty percent of the public falling for it. It's very disappointing, right? It's very very disheartening. I mean, so I think keeping in that keeping that in mind, and then not attaching to that, and just having try and leave some space for manifesting whatever, but how do you, I mean, how do we even figure out like what Michael wants is? How do you figure out how to get out of that matrix? What's that manifestation look like? Is it a cabin in the woods? Cause that's fucking a lot harder than it looks. A buddy, a, a, a guy I just met here locally, he tried it for a year. He said he couldn't handle it more than a year living on his own in a cabin in the woods. I mean, it's not, sometimes I feel like going there, but you know, you're just working to survive at that point. Yeah. You know, you're not sitting around legs crossed reading books all day long. You're fucking working all day, all night to survive. Right. Yeah. It's a whole nother level of living. And that's seems like what they're either pushing us to do is go off grid or be completely in the grid. Like these tall tower cities where you're all living up on an up down vector. And that's literally in their agenda 21 stuff. And dude, there I, there's condos in Toronto that are already saying. You can't live in this condo unless you're double jabbed. Wow. So that's only one slippery slope away from a booster and another booster and a couple pills and whatever. And the next triple vaccine that you saw Moderna coming out with for all the, all the, all these things now, it's going to block you from everything. So now, I mean, this is where it's going like this. How can you have any other conclusion? So how do we, what do we do? What do, what do we do? How do we manifest our own reality? How do we be creative? There was a great m- movie from uh, or a lecture from John Rappaport that John Paul Rice has in his link tree. And it's, and it's from like seven years ago, six years ago, I think 2015. And it's so, pre- it's so relevant to today, but John's like people, you have to create your own, you have to have the confidence or at least have the intention of creating your being able to create your own reality like to create your to to create something anything that can change the world most most people just say what i can create something but it'll never make a difference but he really challenges people to look at into that why can't you why can't you just create something out of nothing that'll change the world like how do we do yeah. how do we how do we you know how do we create a parallel economy and is it going to be underground like what oh. is, what is that even going to look like like who knows what that is like we were joking around about like hey there's going to be a job for drivers to go pick up groceries for the unvaccinated i mean there's going to be people that are going to connect the two worlds i mean but where that where's that second well, world going to be and that's what they're pushing us towards i mean my girlfriend and i were just kind of having that discussion like well you know are we going to have to just put on masks and and go in the grocery store at this time and and then i was like well what if we just order online and she's like no that's what they're getting us all to do to break off of the normal way things used to be and go into that amazon paradigm where you just get everything delivered and you stay home and you know it doesn't matter like how big or cool your town is or what happens there because you just living in your virtual reality now i mean it just it feels like it's that big pharma push with the transhumanism push and and to go down a little bit of a tangent i don't know if you are aware of Troy McLaughlin's work, but I definitely think I'll put you in touch with him to have him on your show. One thing that he mentioned on his recent appearance on the higher side chats is how the economic system has changed 
three different major currencies, gold, silver, and opium. And opium is what like the ancient books talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, why it was all so bad there because they were dealing in this black poppy currency, this red poppy heroin currency. So now you look at the real movers and shakers of today, and that's where they have their hands in those pies in the, in the big pharmaceuticals, all the, you know, activity in the Middle East and Afghanistan and, and Vietnam, all of these military campaigns coincidentally in places that produce those drugs. I mean, it just seems like, like we're moving towards this dystopia, but like to keep it light we like to push towards solutions on the family think some crazy podcasts so our families don't think we're that crazy so graham you talked to a lot of inspiring people who's inspired you recently what would what solutions do you have in mind to at least if you're not going to build a cabin in the woods maybe purify your water maybe detox your guys or anything in that realm that you've looked into recently that's exciting yeah, before I get into that, I, I do I do want to just add, throw something back at you. We're not not throw something back at you, but how how bad is it that I I don't I don't even like I want like you're talking about the you know this the being in your home and and separating like not like doing what they want you to do like how bad is it that I actually just want that right now like I don't even want to be out there. I don't blame you, people. I mean, I'm at the point now where it's like I just I have a I do I love my home. Love my girlfriend. I like it here now. I've done. I've done a lot in my life. Like, it's got to. And I'm thinking, geez, I, I'm gonna have to get over that. Like, I'm gonna have to get past that because well, it's if, almost if change is gonna happen. Like, that this whole thing might be uprooted. But I mean, right now I'm just comfortable working from home, which is kind of like, in a lot of ways, it's what they want. But it's also what I want right now. So that's oh, weird. It it is interesting. Like, I can't say I would be doing this if it wasn't for everything that happened just because of how the opportunities lined up. And it's funny, like, you wouldn't you probably be happy if you were doing this without the, the whole situation going on? I mean, yeah, I'm like, happy what? doing it now. I'm happy doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm happy doing it now, but I'm wondering if I'm, if I've been brainwashed into that because I don't, I just don't, to be honest with you, I don't want to go out in the public with a bunch of people wearing masks at all fairs on it. Just a uh, dude. It's, it's like the masks are back here. And it's like, I just, I just don't even want to, I can't, you can't even talk to people. I don't even want to be, I just don't. And, and why, why, why does that bother me so much? But it does bother me. So I got to look inside and that's one of the solutions is look inside. I think getting, getting your authentic self, like get into your, be able to look at your shadow and look at what's going on inside. I mean, some people say that's an escape as well, but I think that there's, there's a lot of value in that, that where I was going to go with that Eric P. Anthony stuff, that meditation is he does these alchemical, like there's an alchemical meditation where you bring in these energies, uh, emotions, like negative emotions and positive emotions, and you pull them through your, your body. They're not quite the shockers, but your mind center. So your, your, your heart, um, your throat, your head, your abdomen, for example, and you can transmute that energy, right? You can bring in that negative energy and transmute it. I mean, we're capable of doing all that. We can get rid of that traumatic energy and emotion and, and transmute it into positive stuff. And I think that helps peel away layers of your authentic self. I mean, 
so that's one thing I believe that'll that'll help no matter what. But as far as like real solutions, I mean, Derek, we just had Derek Bros on his his show will be coming out this week, and I mean the whole freedom cell thing. I think getting connected with local people, I'm sort of I'm not connected enough. I mean, I've procrastinated a lot of stuff like this, getting in physical shape and connecting with local people. I've done more more stuff online, which is kind of shitty in a way, but I should probably get more connected. I think looking up the freedom cells, looking up who's using your neighborhood. Darren's Darren's already taught himself how to hunt for a couple of years now. He's totally sufficient at hunting and cutting up his own meat and you got yourself a bow though. Don't sell yourself short. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. Well it's in the shop right now. So I I don't know. I don't have it right now. So I better get that back. It's getting tuned up. That's all right. But yeah, I don't really know. I mean, a lot of, I I don't know a lot of those solutions besides connecting with a bunch of people and, and, and I think preparing yourself emotionally, I think preparing, talking to your family members and telling them, like, I remember last October, I called my family and said, Hey, this is coming down the pipe, these mandatory vaccines. I just want you to know that I'm not going to be participating in this and we'll have to come up with a plan if, if. If anything, if the grid goes down or anything like this, like, where are we going to meet? Like, and, and when my girlfriend's not here, I've, we've got a plan that if the grid goes down, I'm going, I'm going to her, right? Like she waits there and I'll go to her. So there's certain things like that. I mean, I think that's just practical sort of emergency prepping. I mean, whether you have, you know, extra gas and food and all that basic prepping stuff, like, I think just more of it is like, have a plan with your loved ones, like start there, just talk to them, have those difficult conversations say, you know, Hey, like if they, if they come and get me, I'm doing this, or if the grid goes down at this level, I'm doing that. Or if it goes down at this level, I'm doing that. I mean, you know, I got just enough gas probably to make it to, to my girlfriend where she's going to be, if she's not here, she's going to be somewhere else. Right. So just stuff like that, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's absolutely what everyone should have done already. If you haven't get to it, make those plans. Cause you never know what could happen. You know, we got weaponized weather. We got chemtrails in the sky. Insert the chemtrail jingle. Dude, <laughs> and- dude if, if, you're in Can- if you're in Canada right now and you're planning on not partaking in their experiment, mm. there's a good chance they're going to come after you. Right. They're, already, they're already demonizing you to the point where 80% of the people are calling you. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. 80, 80%, that's not a fair statement. 80% have been jabbed, 70 to 80, but 50% of those are demonizing you to the point where they're like in, in papers, they're putting headlines in, like, just let them die, that kind of stuff. Like it's going to get, it's going to get a little hairy here in October and November when the cases and the hospitalizations continue to increase and they blame the 20% that haven't partaked in this experiment, the control group that's, you know, I mean, I, at what point are they going to let it go. Like, just let us, let us go. You're not going to get to a hundred. What do you want? 95, a hundred. Like, are you really think you're going to get that? But they, they're, they're going to go for it. Yeah. So well, it's going to get hairy. Yeah. And my heart goes out to you, man. I mean, I definitely, I, I'm glad I'm not up there. I think in the United States, it's probably coming closer and closer to that every day. So we got to keep our heads up over here, but Graham, this has been real fun, man. I know it's, it's still early for you, but it's getting late over here on the East Coast. And let the people know what you got in store. You said an episode with Derek Bros is coming out soon. That's exciting. I like Derek. He's a cool yeah. guy. Freedom Cells. You got yeah. Outlawed. You got Crimerica Show. What else is going on? People can got check the, out. Uh, 
Yeah, we got the audiobooks at uh, adultbrain.ca. So we got a bunch of old audiobooks that are that are get put out. They're not old books; they're new books, but they're old writings. There's a bunch more of those coming out. We've got like Hamlet's Mill, a Secret Teachings, Secret Teachings of All Ages, a couple of Secret Societies books, uh, Secret Doctrine Part One and Two and Three, and ISIS Unveiled will be coming out soon as well. So there's some really good tomes there that are out in audio now, and we've also got. Uh, rockfin slash grammarica rockfin.com slash grammarica we've got a few videos there so any of that kind of helps support us and then grammarica a lot in grammarica regular grammarica.ca right on. regular show right on yeah and i will say guys thanks it's been fun yeah yeah no you guys do a great job have inspired me incredibly i don't think i'd be doing this show without all the great work you've done so thank you for joining me a second time give my best to darren and his new book a canadian shame people please go check that out as well and yeah graham keep your head up man thank you so oh, yeah, much for thanks joining, Sorry, I buddy. Meant to plug that i meant to plug that dude. yeah it's all good <laughs> thanks buddy all right pal have a great night yeah situations to deal with. How will you look back on your when you talk you've had some situations to deal with?
Is the author of Eden and Entheogens. It's an open source, kind of open source. It's freely available on uh, archive.org and, and he wants people to participate and give them feedback. But first, let's, let's get into it. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. We've done a couple episodes in this kind of frame before because it's just a personal interest of mine. I've been smoking cannabis for the past eight or nine years and yep. definitely reached a lot of interesting points from using mushrooms and, and other psychedelic herbs and right. acid. No, what got you interested in all this? It, yeah, it's uh, yeah, interesting question. So I, I kind of, I played music growing up and I went to a kind of music school. I was always kind of in these kind of artistic circles where cannabis was going around, a couple other things too. And so that's just, just kind of what I was around, you know, growing up and I, I, I kind of dabbled with it. I kind of went in, took a break, went again. It, it, so it was, but it was an interesting thing because I mean, man, because of like all the social pressures around it too, are just really crazy and interesting. I was, I grew up in a, in a pretty Christian family. And so it was, it was pretty frowned upon in general, but at the same time, I don't know. I, I just always, I was always drawn to this kind of like, I don't know, this kind of renegade lifestyle, I guess, where it's like, you know, there's something, there seems to be, in my opinion, there seems to be something wrong with like the, like official narratives that we get give by just by schools and by everybody. It seems like there's just something missing from all some, from so much that we're learning, we're learning from school, from university, from our jobs or whatever. And so I wanted to, I, I don't know. I just, I've always been curious and I've always just been interested in all kinds of different things. So this ties together my interest in the Bible with my interest in kind of cannabis and psychedelics and, and really even in, in arts and philosophy and in government as well, because we get into some of those things in this book too. So yeah, you know, that kind of sums it up, I think. Yeah, no, very cool. I think that's what you find when you start looking into this stuff is that it's all interwoven. I mean, hemp, hemp is completely essential to things like trading and, and navigating the ocean. I mean, it's a, right. it's a staple crop going back thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it's one of the first plants we find in some archeological digs, right? I mean, we have recently had Chris Bennett on the podcast. So I'm sure you're familiar with Chris Bennett. If not, he wrote uh, several books on the history of cannabis and and right. one of the, the oldest known findings he said was in like, I think Central Asia, right? Jay, was it China or Central Asia? Are you, are you familiar, Adam, where the, the oldest familiar, like, I do not remember cannabis use was. I don't know, but I, I know that there was recently a cannabis find in Israel that seems yes. to be tied to about the 900s BC, tied to the ancient Israelites. 
kind of just shortly after the time of King Solomon. Really interesting. It's just, there's so much stuff coming up now. I mean, just the fact that cannabis residue was found in this altar is like, what? They were probably burning cannabis residue in these temples and inhaling cannabis. I mean, this is probably what they did when they had these, these religious ceremonies. It's, they were just dumping cannabis onto these altars and letting the smoke fill up the room. And you get all kinds of uh, references to that in the Bible too, about smoke filling the tabernacle and the temple of Saul. And, and it's always accompanied too, which it's interesting. It's always accompanied by the presence of the Lord is the way that they put it in the Bible. So it's, it's like, it, it's very clearly religious for them. It's very clearly like about this kind of sacred, uh, divine connection to nature. It's interesting too, that you find this in the Bible, cause you don't really expect to find that in the Bible. If you kind of just look at Christians today and people who follow the Bible today, you don't really expect to, to find that, but it seems to be that the entire old Testament of the Bible is just totally predicated upon these, these psychedelic kind of warriors, essentially these, these warriors who took psychedelic drugs very frequently and they played music. King David wrote songs, for example, you have all kinds of interesting, it's just a totally psychedelic culture that's be, that's present in the old Testament. And it's so unusual once you start seeing it, it's really interesting. It's, it's really, because it makes sense of a lot of these stories in the Bible where you have hallucinations of angels and demons and visions and all this stuff. It's okay. Once you introduce the psychedelic drugs, you can say, this is why this is happening. It's, and it's real to them. They're experiencing it like it's real, but it's not like material, material real, the way that scientists would kind of like to frame it as. And so people go and discredit these religions, but they were, it's really interesting because they were, they seem to be engaged in this kind of cultural thing that, that we're engaged in now too. I think the psychedelic community where we're trying to like come together and to build new ways of thinking about the world and new way of participating in society that's less harmful, less destructive. It seems that they had this kind this same sensibility and it's, it's just really interesting when you look at the Bible that way as a kind of psychedelic cultural story, it's really fascinating to me. And so that's basically what my book is. It's, it's a way of looking at the Bible that frames it that way. And it seems to make a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. Now, when you, you, you're growing up, obviously, like you said, is very Christian, conservative, uh, upbringing. And, and you said, I, I can definitely relate to this sense of like renegade, right? I myself was raised Roman Catholic and oh, sure. Yeah. had church every Sunday and my parents were very hippie-ish. They smoked a lot, but they still, out of respect for our grandparents, my grandparents, we had to go to church and it must be, I mean, I want to ask you how you felt finding out that all this psychedelic information was hidden in the Bible. It's like really uh profound when you realize like oh wow these people don't even realize what they're going to church and reading every week has all these amazing truths about in some cases it seems like, yeah yeah it's really interesting it's in some cases it seems like if you, if you just look a little deeper it's like there's some really interesting stuff there yeah and so i don't know it kind of it slowly happened over the course of time one of the big things that happened for me i so i was born and raised christian but my dad's side is actually from the, from the Muslim world. So my, so a big experience for me was going to Morocco for the first, which is where my dad's from and seeing this very different culture, this very old culture that has been around for a long time. And it, it just, it just, it left this really remarkable impression on me, the way people communicated, even though I didn't really understand Arabic, it was, it left an impression on me. The way that they communicated with each other was very different. and. I, I, I kind of 
romanticized kind of Eastern world. I mean, ever since really, I, it's been that way for me. And so I've been curious about the Bible, about the Islamic tradition, about a lot of things that kind of tie into that Eastern world. So that was a big, that was a big eye opener for me because it seemed that seemed to, to be kind of much more like emotionally free. It wasn't so restrictive. The kind of Arabic culture is that way. It's, I mean, there is, they are strict too, but it's, but it's, it's a different, in, di in a different way. I think, uh, there's beauty has a different role in Arabic culture than it does like in Western culture. Our buildings are just like these big old skyscrapers, but in the Arabic world, you have a few of these like really extraordinary mosques that are just like yeah, so much attention to detail and yeah, this great craftsmanship that goes into this stuff. And that's like a real big symbol of wealth to them there too, in that part of the world. And it, it's always been that way, really, is, is going back is, is all the way through the Bible. It's always been that the arts were like the, the kind of higher expression of the divine. And it was a symbol of wealth and prosperity and that you had a functioning society because you could convince everybody to come together and work on something like a mosque or something like that. So it, it kind of just, it really kind of brought out this fascination, this curiosity about this kind of different way of life, this different part of the world. And it just, and I, as time went on, I kind of began picking up on these psychedelic influences and how that tied into like my personal experiences with, with, with cannabis or with, with mushrooms or any of these drugs and just being struck by certain sentiments or feelings that are similar. It's it was really interesting. So yeah, that kind of sums up, I guess, a part of that. So yeah, and Rocco, I mean, some of the best hash in the world, right? At my, I mean, I just get that's that's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. I ha I haven't tried any. I probably should have, but I haven't. I don't know. I've. It's always my family there, and so I try not to get into too much trouble. So yeah, and I'm a foreigner in, in their country too, and they can give Americans a hard time every once in a while. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, one time I, I found some hash that was just mind blowing stuff. I, I haven't, it's not easy to come by, but it, it, it was in my hands for a little while and it was great. I mean, great. Yeah. Yeah. Have you looked into anything about these like tents that they would use to kind of fumigate? So they had like the hot rocks and they would put the herbs on the hot rocks and they would all go in these tents. I think it's even in the Bible. There's like a, a description exactly how to build the tent and to seal it the right way so the smoke stays in it. And these yes. folks would go into the tent to speak to the Lord, just like you mentioned before. They're always right. that the pretense is, is that the, the Lord will be engaging with you when you're doing these drugs. And, and I think now with cultural contexts, like any time as like just a recreational psychedelic user, like if you have like a friend who gives it to you, what do they tell you? They're like set and setting, man, you got to get the right set. You got to have the right setting so that you can facilitate this interesting high. And when you put that in the cultural context of how they were perceiving these herbs and, and plants back then, like they purely truly thought that these plants were given to them by God wholeheartedly, no doubt. Right. So yeah. when they had this psychedelic experience, it was truly a religious experience. There's nothing Absolutely. like they had ever experienced before, but yeah, I, I gotta, I wonder how strong the bud was back then. Right. Well, I imagine if you're throwing heaps of it onto an altar and you're hot boxing it, yeah. <laughs> and you just, you keep inhaling. Yeah. You don't really stop inhaling it. So. Yeah. Right. Um, 
but yes, you're right. They do give instructions in the Bible about the construction of the tabernacle, where they basically seem to be burning incense basically around the clock and the priests go in there and they make their plans about where the nomadic community is going to move. And they all, they consult with God and they consult with each other. And this is, this was a big part of their lifestyle. And the the point you, you mentioned about set and setting is also very interesting and important too. It's this there for the Israelites at, at, at least they had their their kind of tabernacle their temple was at the center of their camp so you had all of these kind of these other tribes kind of around this kind of central kind of location and this is where a lot of the decision making was done for the whole for all the tribes where they would go when they would move if they had to go to war all these big decisions would basically get made here and you'd also have people bringing animals to be sacrificed and that would basically mean that the priests would be able to eat and anybody who was poor would be able to go there and get some meat to eat. And this is kind of how they, they operated their kind of nomadic society. And the, the point about set and setting that I'm getting to here is, is related to the fact that their, their tent is basically surrounded by all the other tribes. So it's the safest place in, in the community where you're not going to get bugged by other people. And there's all these rules about who could go into the, the tabernacle area. And a foreigner was not allowed anywhere near it because, I mean, you can imagine if like an enemy or a foreigner comes in while you're, you're taking these drugs. I mean, you could get really freaked out and it could, it would be a thing related to honor. Probably if, if like the high priest, like showed fear or something, because some guy looked at him the wrong way, it like probably turned into some kind of a scandal of some sort. So to avoid all that is there are all these rules around who could go in the tabernacle and it was the priests and people who were experienced with these drugs. And so they were kind of controlling the kind of mindset and the mentality that was going into these experiences in a, in a sophisticated and premeditated way, which is so interesting to me. And that's what, if you really look at the Bible and you kind of get a read between the lines a little bit to, 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 cause we don't necessarily know for certain that this was cannabis, but we have this, this evidence in Tel Arad, which we were talking about earlier. We have the Kenebosam reference in the Bible, which is the Hebrew word for this. Some people think it's cannabis. It's, it's some people think that is where our word for cannabis comes from. So that might be the case. It, and it it's seems to be the Kenna, right? I mean, that, that word Kenna is it can used since I think the, the Hindu, the proto-Hindu people, right? They had that same root word used for. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And well, this is something Chris Bennett talked to us about. So maybe we're, we're coming with uh, one loaded in the chamber, but yeah, that's like something Chris was talking about. He did mention cannabosum. That's a big part of his theory. And that comes from Sula Bennett, another with the same last name. I wonder if that's his pen name. I'm not sure, but <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sula Bennett is the Dutch author who first made that connection between cannabosum and cannabis. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you do have to do some interpretive kind of reading, but once you kind of figure out what was going on around the tabernacle, you read the, the rules in Deuteronomy and all of these other books, you get this sense that, okay, these priests might've been using these drugs, kind of controlling who was allowed to come near this kind of sacred area. And they were just trying to really kind of have this authentic religious experience. And they wanted to, they really wanted to kind of like tap into something um, divine when they made their decisions. Because you want the blessing of the gods. You don't want to make some stupid decision that's going to destroy your community and 
for example, going to, to war at the wrong time or against the wrong tribe. It could be maybe you sacrifice too many animals and then all of your, your sheep die and you don't have any more meat. And it takes forever for you, for these sheep to reproduce again and to develop some kind of supply of meat. So they have to make all these decisions all the time. And they wanted to kind of be in this kind of this kind of holy mindset while they were making these decisions, I think. And that's why they were constantly incorporating these drugs, at least to some extent. And it may be the case that these drugs were cognitive kind of agents that helped them think through problems in some way. And Terrence McKenna talks about mushrooms being an agent for evolution and causing the gradual development of the human brain. And there's an interesting kind of phenomenon and connection here to Silicon Valley because a lot of people in Silicon Valley are taking hallucinogens and working on these really interesting computer uh, programming projects and problems. So it seems that these drugs do have some kind of cognitive effect that, that can, some kind of enhancing cognitive effect really, that can be beneficial. And it, it may be the case that this is how they were used in antiquity. I mean, it was brain vitamins, really. That's one way to look at it. It's, there's a couple ways to look at it, but that's one way to think about it for sure. Now. I got to put you on the hot seat here and ask you a question. When you're yeah. looking at this information, I, I see you have a historical angle. You're looking at their cultural like narrative and understanding how, what they think. But what do you think? Like when they're engaging with gods, do you think that this is purely uh, substantial, meaning like a product of the substance they're taking? Or do you think that there actually is a spiritual process going on here? Do you think that like we're, what is your stance on, on consciousness, or do you prefer to leave your beliefs out of the, the work? Well, when I'm writing it, I try not to assert too much of the religious and kind of supernatural. And sometimes it's hard, it's hard not to, <laughs> frankly, it's like, it's really, it's remarkable sometimes. So, but my personal belief is certainly that this is, that this is the, I believe that uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms, cannabis, uh, these natural plant medicines are, are the root of human evolution, the root of human religion, and that this is in part of, of part of our origin story. And that's why we have this kind of relationship, I think, or this urge to have this relationship with these things and this curiosity about them. I think it's just, it's just somehow tied to just our kind of our evolutionary history, but it's, there's probably something more to it that I can't really put in words, but I mean, like. And that's, that's the whole religious dimension. It's yeah, it's bigger than us. I think, you know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. And I think that when you look at the evidence for the endocannabinoid system in our own nervous system, it's pretty clear that this, these molecules fit in like a puzzle piece. Or right. Right. Or before on the show, cause it just makes the most sense. Like these random plants, if humans never interacted with them, like it would still be this puzzle piece, whether or not we use them. It's like right. you have a point there by saying like, no, it's not random. These are a part impartial to why we have this consciousness. I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know? And yeah, I don't know how much I buy into the stoned ape theory. I don't know if I, I agree with like that humans were once this like proto human that just stumbled upon mushrooms or cannabis randomly. And that's why we gained this leap in consciousness. That's just my personal belief. But I do think that if there is some sort of creator out there, then there, there's certainly a chance that these things were created for that exact purpose uh, to facilitate these higher consciousness. I don't think it's all by random chance. You get what I mean? Like I still think right. it might work mechanically like that, but I don't know if, if it's not being guided. Cause when you look at sacred geometry and all this, 
it just seems like when the, the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio, you see this over and over in plants. And that's exactly what we're talking about with cannabis and mushrooms. We're talking about these organisms that express those, um, sequences, those numerical sequences in such a high frequency that it's able to create these chemical molecular changes that fit like puzzle pieces into our consciousness. And yeah, I don't know if, if it's like the chicken or the egg type argument or not, but I do think that it's certainly metaphysical because what happens when you take these drugs, you, you can experience those sacred geometric shapes, but what are your thoughts on synthetic psychedelics like LSD and, and MDMA and these, because they do come from plants, but they've been kind of concentrated. Do you think that they fit into the, the timeline? Do you think that, what do you think? Right. That's an interesting question. Personally, I've, I've had experience with LSD on one occasion. Very strong stuff, man. <laughs> Holy cow. Very strong stuff. And so it's, but it seems that too, even in the ancient world, they were doing some kind of concentration of, of these plants and these drugs. I mean, even just by hotboxing in a tent with cannabis, you're doing, you're concentrating these chemicals into, so that you can continually inhale them over and over. And with ergot as well, it seems that ergot may have been a part of the kind of ancient Greek wines. And that was, was a kind of LSD, that's an LSD precursor really. So, so that's, so... That seems to be that it seems to be that even in the ancient world, they were trying to figure out ways of finding more drugs and, and finding more altered states of consciousness. I think it's something that you probably want to be careful with if you're going to experiment with with synthetic stuff. There's, and, but it's I mean even if you're going to experiment with with natural stuff, you have to be careful as well. I mean ayahuasca, you need to have the right diet if you're going to take ayahuasca. And so it's you know it it is something that you have to definitely be careful with. I just I think I personally. Just, I'm not that interested in synthetics just because I think that the natural stuff is pretty strong. I just, I think it's, I mean, it's really pretty strong stuff. Mushrooms, cannabis, it doesn't, you know. I mentioned that. Silicon Valley people, and I, I, I think that there is probably the microdosing of mushrooms in LSD, but I'm in the same camp as you where I'd recommend people microdose mushrooms rather than LSD because, I mean, yeah. the same people that created like, Agent Orange created LSD, like IG Farben created LSD. So I think there's definitely, it gets a little fishy when you start yeah. looking at drugs after the 1900s. I think pre, and obviously you're focusing on ancient cultures, but are there any, any strange drugs that you find? Cause I know that like Blue Lotus, for example, is slightly hallucinogenic. Are there other drugs that were used in antiquity that we might not be familiar with that you've come across? I just, I actually haven't come across anything that's so shockingly new. I don't think. Yeah. I, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty much, it's a lot of the same stuff. It's cannabis, it's mushrooms. The ergotized wines seem to be a big part of it. Brian Murarescu recently did that episode on Joe Rogan. I'm not sure if you saw that really fantastic episode where this guy is a I mean, he's a Greek philologist and he's able to read ancient Greek. So it's really interesting to have somebody like that kind of look at this stuff and really take another, a second, a second look, because it's kind of, it seems like it's kind of a little bit gone by the wayside, the, the antique stuff that was kind of more common in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Terrence McKenna kind of got in at the tail end of it there in the eighties and nineties. 
but it seems like the antique kind of uh, scholarship on psychedelics and even just the kind of fascination with the antique world seems to have kind of just kind of die down because of the technology and all the new stuff that's happening now, of course. So, but it's, it's kind of cool to see Brian Murarescu kind of looking at these old sources again. And with this kind of the whole, I think he calls it archaeobotany, which is where you do chemical analysis of these vessels to see what drugs were in there. And that's, and they found ergot in a Greek vessel that was in Spain, if I remember it correctly. So yes, it's a lot of the same kind of stuff. I, I mean, they kind of shared a lot of the same things all throughout the kind of Mediterranean region, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Adam, have you heard of ancient civilizations making bread out of ergot or making, cause me and Mark used to work for a bakery and he mentioned that ergot is found in the rye flour, right? So I looked it up and I thought I saw that there was ancient civilizations. They used to make bread with like rye flour and it had a lot of ergot in it. There was like a, a town in France that was like poisoned by ergot in the bread supply. And they all had like this dancing, I think they called it like the dancing hallucination or the dancing plague. And sure. I'm not, well, again, that's not really antiquity, but still very interesting case. There. But still, yeah, definitely very interesting. I, I haven't heard of much intentional use of ergot in bread. There is, there is one story though, that I briefly allude to in this book with Moses. So one interpretation of, of the Passover is that, is that Moses basically issued out this command to, to, for all the Israelites not to eat leavened bread. He said, basically for these days, don't touch the leavened bread. And I forget the name of the scholar who wrote this book, but I reference him very briefly in my book. There's, there's an idea out there that Mo, what Moses did was he, all the Israelite slaves who were working in the kitchens, basically just spiked the, the leavening with ergot. And so what they did before they left Egypt on the Exodus out of, out of ancient Egypt is they spiked this leavening with ergot. They abstained from it. So they were sober, but all of the Egyptians who were eating this stuff ended up tripping. And so. That allowed them to kind of leave Egypt, kind of just kind of sneak out a little bit. And also one thing that they talk about in the Bible is that the, the Israelites borrowed from the Egyptians before they left. So what they did is they, they borrowed like necklaces and things that would, they could use to trade, but they weren't borrowing because these people were drugged out of their minds on drugs. I mean, if this theory is correct and, and it's, and it says in the Bible, so the Israelites plundered the Egyptians without bloodshed. It's, that's what it said is they were plundered without bloodshed. That it's they got really, roofied. <laughs> they got roofied basically by Moses is what happened. <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's a pretty remarkable theory. Sorry, I don't know if I'm offending you there or anything. So No, no, that's okay. hilarious. I love that. Okay, that's yeah. really, oh, but we, yeah, we did work at a bakery. And I, I wonder though, because they were using cannabis in all these different ways. I wonder if they ever did bake it into a bread, because as long as there's a fatty substance to go along with it, you can essentially make an edible, right? They, they, right. But what, have you looked into like the anointing oils at all and, and, and anything like what they're doing? Cause I know that the Messiah means like the anointed one. And if these anointing oils were used with like more than just myrrh and frankincense, if they were using cannabis in that oil, then that would make sense as to why, like, you know, Jesus Christ would heal the sick. And what were, what was he healing people of demon possession yeah. back in those days? They thought 
when someone had an epileptic seizure that they were possessed. So it's, have you heard that uh, connection being made before? I have. Yes. Yes. I've, I've stumbled upon that. Yeah. The, the notion that the anointing oil was very likely some kind of, uh, dermal cannabis concoction that you'd put on your skin, you'd absorb it through your skin and it would enter your bloodstream that way. That, that's basically my understanding of it. So yeah. And the idea that Jesus was going around healing the sick using this anointing oil, um, that cannabis is a great treatment for people with epilepsy. So that, that makes a lot of sense that they were using these kind of natural plant medicines to, to heal people at these kind of medical difficulties that they, they thought were demon possessions because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't have any, they didn't have the kind of medical jargon that we have now. So that that's what, that's what they called it. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting thing. I, I do, I do touch on that briefly. Danny Nemo does a great job with that going over the anointing oil and his uh, ideas about that. Really uh, interesting. It's interesting to think about this too, with this as a kind of synergistic effect. If you have, for example, the ancient Israelites consuming mushrooms and smoking this cannabis, rubbing it on their skin. I mean, these people were really into this stuff. It seems like, it seems like they were like, they were really engaged with this. And it's not like they just did it like once. I mean, it seemed like this, it was this ritual thing that at least a small section of the society was doing continually. And that's a really interesting thing to think about, to have a small section of the society that's, that just does, that just takes these, these drugs and thinks about creative problem solving, I think. And I think that's kind of what was going on in the leadership of the ancient Israelites. So yeah, it, it's an interesting way to look at this ancient culture and also to, maybe to think of a new model for how we could think about modern society and even the psychedelic community and where our place is in modern society. Because it seems like we're still figuring out where do psychedelics fit into society? There's the legalization questions, the decriminalization questions. And it's a, it, I think looking at the traditional ancient ways of doing this stuff is a good place to start kind of just building a model for how to think about how this can work in the future. So that's kind of another aspect to, to all of this. Yeah. And when you're doing your research, are you, are you looking into certain books that, cause I know we see the Rastafarian culture today, right? They're big proponents of cannabis and they have versions of the Bible that were preserved in Ethiopia right. outside of the influence of this Constantinople and all the empires that altered the Bible throughout time in Europe. I think that that's interesting. And then there's also the Dead Sea Scrolls that came out in the past century. And then other forgotten Gnostic texts that also talk about certain things. I mean, are you looking at all these different sources? Cause I know you mentioned Merrick Keskew, yes. right? Brian yeah. M and he, he reads Greece, Greek, right? So that's important because some of the most original versions of the Bible are written right. in right. Greek. So, but what, 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 where's your sources coming from? Right. So my big source that I use is the King James version uh, of the Bible. That's, that's one of my big kind of bedrock sources. Another one is a Terrence McKenna's books actually. So the way I kind of construct this and I open it up in the introduction is I say, well, Terrence McKenna gave us this postulation that human beings evolved from the consumption of psychedelics, uh, psychedelic mushrooms in particular. And I, what I say basically is if, if Terrence McKenna was right about this evolutionary theory, then we should find these mushrooms present in basically as many world religions as we can. We can definitely, it's definitely there in South America, 
right? It's definitely in some places in Russia. It's also definitely in some places in China and there's in the Vikings of Europe. So there is this kind of substrate of mushroom symbolism that's really interesting that kind of goes through all the world religions. It's really kind of very interesting. And so, but I take this analysis and I kind of go and focus on on the Bible because I think that's kind of where we need the most work, quite frankly. I think that's where we need to kind of really rethink some some of our earlier thoughts and, and biases about what's going on here. But considering J- King James himself took parts of the Bible out, have you looked into like at where that went and, and if there's any, because I myself, I'm not sure if that those books still exist that he, you know, subtracted from the official kind of composition of, of different chapters, right? I haven't looked at all of the books that have been taken out or even all of the, even all like the, what are they called? Like the Nag Hammadi library has a lot of unique gospels that aren't in the Bible. And that's connected to some of this, these Ethiopian forms of Christianity as well. So I haven't looked at all of the missing versions of things, but what I do do is I look at, I start with the old Testament. I look at Judaism look at the psychedelic references. And basically that's what this first book covers. It's just Judaism because it's very old. It's kind of dense and it takes time to work through it a little bit. The next book is going to be about Christianity and Islam because Islam actually really borrows from a lot of these biblical traditions. They even have some biblical traditions that are found like in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Nag Hammadi library that are, that are, that are in the Quran. So it's really really very connected, very interwoven. It's the same cultural area. It's the same region. They, they have the same stories, the same pretty similar views of how, how the world works. And I think psychedelics are prominent in all of these religions, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. I just focus on Judaism. I think I do a pretty good job in my book showing that these guys were probably taking mushrooms. I mean, it's, there's a lot of reasons to believe that they were. There's a lot of reasons. So I can get into some of those reasons if you guys want to get a little bit more detailed. I don't know how, how detailed we want to get, so... Yeah, we can get into some of it. I mean, I, I'm familiar with like all of the scientific innovations that have happened in like in Islam after their, you know, initial period. And I think, yes, there's a case for maybe some psychedelics there, but maybe you can allude on that or elaborate on that more. Yeah, like a little bit, I think. Yes, it's really interesting because it's called the Islamic golden age is, is kind of how academics refer to it. It's, 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 it's probably it's the result, not just of Islam. I think the Persian culture was also very kind of instrumental in this because this was happening in a lot of these ancient cities that were formerly a part of the Persian empire, but were just kind of conquered by the Islamic community and all these new libraries started popping up. And this is really a big part of why we actually have a lot of ancient Greek sources because of these, these Islamic translators who who translated from Greek into Arabic, and then this stuff made its way to Europe. But they were preserving these documents, the Islamic world was, for a long time. Thomas Aquinas, I think, received a lot of his his documentation from these Arabic sources, if if I remember correctly. So it's really interesting to see how much this this carries over into Western culture and civilization. But yes, I think that the kind of psychedelic sentiment and mentality, even of the East, it's just part of the culture, really. I think it's so it's so deeply embedded there. It's just, it's the way that they live. It's just the way that life is. It's, they, it's not like about drugs or anything like that. It's just the, their whole lifestyle, their whole mentality is just, is is different. And, and it, part of it's probably because this, these drugs have had a kind of traditional role in their societies for a long time. 
and they just kind of carry these customs and traditions surrounding this. Sometimes these traditions get lost or they get distorted over time. That happens, but it seems that there is this kind of kernel of this kind of really, I mean, this very human, very feeling uh, culture that, that came out of this, this area. And yeah, it, it gets a little bit more specific with Muhammad and his role with psychedelics, but Muhammad's very clearly, as far as I can tell, was the psychedelic head. I mean, he was a singer, basically, all of the voice, all of the, uh, the verses of the Quran, they were sung in poet and, and they were poetic. They, they were composed as poetry. It, it helped everybody to memorize the, the verses. So it, he would sing this stuff and he was kind of a rock star and he liked the ladies. And I mean, that's, that's just how his personality was. We have a lot of records about like what kind of a person he was. It's really interesting. And, and yeah, you have a few really obscure references that kind of hints that he was taking psychedelics. One of one easy one is um, actually a reference to, to Esfahad or Syrian Rue, which is actually one of the more obscure ones that's very uh, specific to the Middle East. Um, apparently Muhammad's whole family was in the habit of growing this stuff and even burning it as incense. Basically what this is, it's an MAOI inhibitor, just like, um, I think it's the ayahuasca vine that's the MAOI inhibitor. Am I right about that? Well, it's two components. One of them is the inhibitor. I'm not sure if it's. I think it's the vine. I think the vine is the inhibitor. And then the, the, the psychotry of Eurydice, if I'm remembering the name correctly, is the, is the DMT. I could be wrong. Fact check me if you want for this matter. Anyways, the Syrian Rue is the MAOI inhibitor. So what that would do is that would actually activate orally any kind of drugs you're eating throughout your day. If you're, if you're having, you know, any kind of, if you, if, I don't know if there's a food source in the Middle East or not that has a high DMT content, but if you're using this as incense and you're inhaling a Syrian Rue throughout your day, you're going to have kind of more psychedelic effects come out of your diet, even just regularly. Really interesting. And it's used as the DMT is in a lot of plants. So yeah, you're absolutely right that like, you might not even need to like have it as a pair, like they do with ayahuasca, you could have gotten DMT from a variety of different plants. I mean, people kind of point to the acacia tree, right? I think that's some main interpretations because it is so rich in DMT, but there are yes. thousands of plants that have DMT in them. Exactly. Yeah. have DMT in them. <laughs> Right, right. So that's an interesting possibility that the Syrian rue, which is also a big part of actually uh, the color red that was used in the in Persian rugs. I think that this is how they made their red dyes. When the rugs are psychedelic as well. I was going to mention that before. I mean, you just look at the amazing variety of patterns that they've created in this huge artwork, art space. It's really miraculous. Yes. To this day, people seek those rugs out because they're so beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And there's another art pattern that's very interesting. You know, I wish, I, I wish we were doing video so I could show this image, but I can explain it kind of a little bit. There's a, there's an art pattern that's called the arabesque in the Arabic world. You can look that up. It's A-R-A-B-E-S-Q-U-E. If anybody wants to look that up. We'll have a link in the show notes. I'll, I'll make sure I find a picture of it so people could just scroll down. Sure. See it. Sure. Sure. Okay. But so this is like a, a pattern it, that's, that was kind of developed during the kind of Islamic golden age. And what did they, what they typically do is they make these repeating patterns that kind of repeat in this infinite loop. You've probably seen it in all kinds of Islamic architecture. It's, it's all over in the Islamic world. And usually it's like stars that are like infinitely repeating. And so it, it uses geometry 
to make this kind of fractal, like infinite repeating geometry. I mean, I think what that, that art form is, is these kind of Eastern artists trying to, to draw what they see when they take hallucinogens. I, that's what I think that the arabesque is. It's, it seems to me that, that and it's in a lot of times too, it's, it's very floral. They use a, a lot of flowers involved in this stuff. And it's, it's, it's has this kind of plant magic thing going on about it. It's really interesting, very interesting, unique art form that has this kind of infinitely repeating kind of pattern. That's very similar to the, the notion of like fractal geometry, very similar. That sounds great. So there's so many theories about like mushrooms. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that the fly agaric mushroom had anything to do with it? Or do you think there's a, maybe a lost species of mushroom that might be the culprit? Because I think the fly agaric mushroom is, is pretty ubiquitous. Like it's very noticeable. It's very unique. So I think if it was truly that mushroom, we might have more evidence. Is there evidence for it? What are your thoughts? Because it's red and white for those who aren't familiar. It's that classic red and white dotted mushroom that you see associated with like Santa Claus. And when you look into that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. It's the, the fly agaric is interesting. Definitely. I think has a prominent role in definitely in European religion in a lot of European cultures. I think it did have a minor role in the Middle East. There's particularly in this region of Lebanon, it seems that it has, there was some popularity in this area concerning this and maybe up into Turkey a little bit as well too. But I think that the tropical psilocybin mushroom was probably actually more common in Egypt and in, because this was a warm tropical climate and probably had a lot of moisture and fog coming off the Mediterranean and the Red Sea and all around that area, I think would have been more conducive to the tropical psilocybin mushrooms rather than the, the Amanita muscarias, which typically grow in colder climates. So maybe in a mountainous region in the Middle East, you'd have some amanitas growing, but it seems to be more common to Europe. And I do give, have one brief section on this uh, in my book where I, uh, Terrence McKenna did also bring this up too. He brought up this notion that R. Gordon Lawson, the kind of father of mycology, really focused a lot on the amanita muscaria mushroom and kind of seemed to disregard the psilocybin mushroom in some cases. And Terrence McKenna offers an analysis of why he thinks that is. And it's really interesting. So we kind of quote from him and I, I interject a little bit too, but it seems that R. Gordon Wasson was a European scholar and that's a symbol he was familiar with. You know, it's, it's a very common Russian kind of religious symbol. And his wife was Russian. Uh, R. Gordon Wasson's wife was Russian. So that's kind of, that's, his wife was actually the person who introduced him to mushrooms in the first place. And that's what kind of sparked his interest in this, in this area. They were on their honeymoon and she picked some mushrooms and she was delighted and she showed him the mushrooms and he was just terrified. And it, apparently this, this event just like ruined their honeymoon or something. And, um, so he just became so curious about why, what, what why did he have that reaction to the, to mushrooms? Like they were lethal or toxic and, and why she loved them so much. And that cultural difference just really fascinated him. And he started studying this stuff. So I think. I think he just kind of focused on the Amanitas a lot because that was kind of his world that he was coming from. And a lot of back then people didn't think that psilocybin existed anywhere except for South America. But now we know that there, the, that there's psilocybin mushrooms in Israel and Egypt and, and all over the Middle East and India as well. So I think it's reasonable to assume that the tropical areas of the, of, of the Mediterranean back then, especially when it was more fertile 
about 3000 years ago, it seems to be the case that it was. Yes, they, I think they were definitely using psilocybin mushrooms, but probably some Amanita mushrooms in there as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I know Gordon Wasson was, yeah, big part of like it becoming uh, a thing in the sixties. And obviously he was traveling down to, to Mexico. I remember learning some of this in one of our favorite books, Carlos Castaneda's teachings of Don Juan, Yaqui Way, and, and he, they mentioned this kind of sacred relationship with, uh, little smoke, he calls it right. This little, he, he sprinkles the mushroom powder into his pipe and smokes it with a, a blend of different things. Have you looked into like the native American or South American use of mushrooms at all? Is that a, somewhere you might go in the future after you get through? I mean, the Bible's a big task. I don't want to like slip too much. In no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's great. You know, I'm pretty. I feel pretty happy with what I've been able to do with my English understanding of the Bible. I think it's, it's pretty good. Other scholars might go through with a fine tooth comb and either correct things I made a mistake on, or maybe they'll further elaborate on some other things I missed or didn't notice. So I, I'm just doing this through an English lens and just trying to get a pretty simplified English version of uh, just a, a sensible way of how this might've happened. It seems to be that they're historical stories. So I just give them the benefit of the doubt, kind of just work through it and think about how this might be a real historical event. and. I look at a lot of scholars too, and draw from a lot of people. So that not like I'm doing this myself. I'm on the internet all the time, looking at stuff and trying to look at other points of view. So as far as native Americans are concerned, yeah, that's that I'm interested in, in the indigenous American culture too. Yeah. I read an article recently that there was an interesting, like cave drawing of this five pointed star that they thought was. It was in Southwest America. I can't remember where it was exactly, but they thought it was a depiction of a detour flower, which, which is this scopolamine flower that it's, it has a very kind of dangerous reputation. And I think probably rightly so it seems to be a dangerous, one of the more dangerous plant drugs that are out there, but it seems that this was probably a big one in America. I think the, 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 the detura plants were probably big here. And it was also big in Europe too, back in the day, they called it Bella. Yeah. Yeah. And women would take it to make their eyes bigger and like to be more attractive. I mean, it was really, I mean, that was in Carlos's book too. Quite, and they, yeah. They yeah. mentioned deter and they mentioned like, this is only for the most seasoned shaman under the right circumstances and with the right preparation, because it is very deadly. And, and I didn't realize that scopolamine was the same plant because I've heard the scopolamine, um, being used in like South American countries to like drug people and, and knock them unconscious and then rob them of, and it has like a, a losing your memory type effect. And you know, that's right. That's, that's really, I mean, it's like a ninja drug. That's very scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that you definitely want to be careful with. Uh, mushrooms and cannabis are pretty good. I mean, for most people, I mean, that's, that really does, it's, it's pretty, that's, that's pretty strong. I mean, if you take enough of that, that's, you, you're not missing out on too much. Want to be yeah. Salvia and, uh, Jimson weed are also mentioned in that book and, and salvia is another interesting one. Right. Uh, I think Jimson weed is a type of either salvia or detura. I'm not sure. Detura. Yes, it is. It is a detura. It's, I think it's a slang term for detura. I think. Yeah, really. Okay. Yeah. But I think that's kind of what he mentioned is like, there are certain circumstances or pieces of the plant that you can use. And yeah, apparently Jimson weed like gives you this like two, three week, almost peyote like trip. If you use it under the right 
circumstances. Obviously, I don't want to advocate for that, but yeah, it's definitely there. There's a variety of, of hallucinogenic plants out there, especially right here in America. No kidding. And yeah, the Liberty Cap is one that's actually been really interesting me quite a lot lately, which is a type of psilocybin mushroom that grows in grass instead of on cow manure. So you have the, the tropical psilocybin mushrooms that are white and they kind of got this golden cap and, uh, and they grow in, in cow poop and, and cow pastures, and typically in tropical climates. There's another kind of psilocybin mushroom that's, that we, is kind of nicknamed as the Liberty Cap. This grows in grass. It can grow in colder climates, like just before the new, it grows up in New York. It grows in a lot of different places. Well, we're uh, etiquette, so that maybe we can find some up here. Cause I, I've gone around, you know, several places in Connecticut and found really beautiful mushrooms, a whole variety, never eaten anything on freight. But I, Jameson and I worked for a farmer's market and there was a guy who sold foraged mushrooms. I mean, I found turkey tail and all that, but that's really cool to know that there might be Liberty caps up here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that they're, they're kind of up in that area. And what's really interesting to think about is this, the symbol of the Liberty cap being such an important symbol for the American. And I, I don't know if this is just a coincidence that the American revolutionaries use the Liberty cap as the symbol of their, of this revolutionary kind of liberatory movement. And the fact that they call these mushrooms now Liberty caps. I don't know if that's a coincidence. And I mean, I, I think this might be like a, a part of the culture and there were a lot of native Americans that fought with, on our side during this war. There, there's, there's a really interesting thing I'm saving for the next book that is just like, it's worth it. I mean, it's choice. It's pretty cool. I'll tell you this episode's coming out after we had David Way on the podcast, who's a martial artist like myself. And we were talking about Wu Dang and these Taoists and Wu Dang who they're not aesthetic. They don't like abstain from drugs. So they're able to do anything, right? They're this really kind of freestyle monks and, uh, sure. We didn't get too much into that, but I wonder now, maybe the uh, Taoists are using stuff like that. Cause I, I, myself as a martial artist, I know that when I started smoking cannabis in conjunction with my training, beneficial symbiosis. And I, I wonder like if taking a bunch of mushrooms helps you load your musket faster and like get to war against the British, like that, that would be kind of profound to find some, some evidence for that. I hope that's what may be in store. We'll see, man. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. What, what I can say, I mean, just preliminary without spoiling it. I think that there's a, some good reasons to believe that some very prominent figures in the American revolution, um, were, were aware of this mystery symbol of this kind of Liberty cap. And this goes back actually before the American revolution goes back to Roman times. I think that. This was a symbol of, of basically senatorial government, meaning like group government, where people got together and made decisions together. And that the mushroom was a part of that symbol of people coming together, thinking together, living as a community and working together. And that's in, in ancient Rome, you had, it was the symbol of the Liberty cap that was, it was a symbol of a freed slave too, which is a very interesting thing. This notion of liberation that comes from, from drugs that comes from, but that there, that comes from, sorry, these, these psychedelics in accompanying that with this political liberation is it's really interesting to think about it that way. And I could imagine that if you were a revolutionary soldier when you're starving and you're the, the Congress is having a hard time getting food supplies up to your camp and you find these mushrooms, I mean, you're probably going to eat them. I mean, 
And on top of that, you're probably going to have a good time too, because now you're not hungry so much and you, and you realize you're fighting for this noble cause. And I'm sure it would increase your kind of nerve and your fervor and you wouldn't like be as freaked out it, if you're going into it with that kind of loyalty to the cause and the loyalty to that revolutionary cause. I think that it would probably be very beneficial, and very helpful. George Washington sat in a very interesting chair. I'll, I'll, I'll give this piece and if you find this piece online, there's some other interesting things that are attached to it. He sat in this very interesting chair that was made for him by a Freemason. And on the top of this chair was, there's a sun that's, it's, I think it's called the rising sun chair is what it's called. There's a sun and it's rising, but it is so odd. Like right above the sun, it looks like an umbrella, but it really looks like a Liberty cap mushroom is what it looks like. <laughs> George Washington sat in this chair and it's on display still. I think it's in Pennsylvania or somewhere. Really something. Look at that. All right. Man. Yeah. That's, that's really a great way to end the episode. This has been a, a great conversation. Jay. I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Me and Adam, of course, oh, yeah. this has been a blast. We really are honored to have you here. And uh, yeah. Thanks for listening to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast.